Good day, everybody. How blessed we have been to sing together the hymns and songs that have praised God. And as we sing them, or even in our minds say the words over to ourselves, how we rejoice to sing of the mercy and the grace that he has given to us. Singing some of those hymns remind us of our weakness and the need to daily call on him to give us the strength to trust and obey. As I prepared this lesson, I was reminded of a particular verse of a hymn that covers much of what we're going to look at together, the message of forgetting God and wandering from him. Robert Robertson, in 1700, had lived a life on the streets and hung out with some rowdies and decided one night to go and heckle the Methodist preacher George Whitfield as he was preaching in the area. To cover his weak urge, he suggested that his pals go with him and heckle the gathering. Whitfield preached on the text from Matthew 3 and 7, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Robert left in dread, under a deep sense of sin that lasted for three years. Finally, at the age of 20, Robert made peace with God and immediately set out to become a Methodist preacher himself. Two years later, in 1757, he wrote a hymn which expressed his joy in his new faith, it was called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the verse that kept going through my mind, and indeed for many years as a believer, has impacted me whenever I sing it, because I see my proclivity to get caught up in this world's allurement. Scott talked about this on Sunday morning, and the truth really hit home. Some of the verses of this hymn say, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. But the part of the hymn that I think deals with this morning's study is that verse that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I heard about a preacher who once said he didn't like to sing that verse of the hymn. We don't need to be reminded of our wandering. And I thought, how could a pastor not warn his flock of their danger of wandering from the Lord? So today's psalm is another song, a song of remembrance that Israel sang. These psalms were part of the hymn book or psalter that Israel used to sing in their worship of God. This one is found in book four. Actually, it's the last one in Book 4. And as we said before, the Book of Psalms is a collection of psalms written at different times in Israel's history. And then sometime after the return from exile, the collection was put together by one or more editors. We're not told who. But this part of the Book of Psalms, which is titled Book 4, goes from Psalm 90 to 106. shows a very interesting pattern. It shows a maturing of Israel. They're in exile. They know why they are in exile. And some of the Psalms in this section of the book recount the bringing up of the Ark to Jerusalem. The Ark, if you remember, was a symbol of the divine presence of God. The Shekinah glory rested upon, him, upon it. And the cover of the Ark was regarded as God's abode or his throne. How do we know this Psalm refers to the bringing up of the Ark to Jerusalem? Well, in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we read the description of what happened. David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And many of the verses in the psalm in this section of the book mirror verses in 1 Chronicles 16. Let me give you slowly where psalms in this section mirror 1 Chronicles. Psalm 96, 1 to 3, mirrors 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 33, 11 verses. Then in Psalm 105, verses 1 to 15, mirrors 1 Chronicles 16, 6 to 22, 15 verses. Finally, Psalm 106, which is what we're looking at today, verse 1 and verses 47 to 48, mirrors 1 Chronicles 16, 34 to 36. That's why I wanted you to read before this today's session those scriptures I sent out in the email. At a later time when the ark was moved by Solomon into the new temple, and this is described in 2 Chronicles 5, 11 to 14, Asaph, 
Heman and Jedithan played the same musical instruments and sang the same words penned by David when he celebrated the arrival of the Ark at Jerusalem. These identical words are reproduced in the first verse of Psalm 106. This psalm would remind the people of the Lord's kingship, how when the Ark, which was the symbol of God's presence among the people, was brought to Jerusalem, and the words, the Lord reigns, or in Hebrew, Yahweh Malak, God is king, would mean that from that point forward, Yahweh's throne was effectively joined to David's throne. So the editors in putting these psalms in this section of the book had a purpose. This psalm happened during the time of exile, when Israel had no king, and yet we see underscored the fact that Yahweh is king among his people. If you read the psalms in this section, they're very intent on declaring the Lord reigns, or Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations, or O come, let us sing to the Lord. So there has been a maturing all the while they've been in ex exile. They realize what's brought them here to a land not their own, what had caused it. They had been given instruction. They had even given assent to the instruction. And yet, as this psalm outlines, they failed. But was God through with them? Well, let's study the psalm and see. But before we start, please join with me in prayer. Father, you've indeed been our dwelling place in all generations. You've given us your word, your promises. You've said that when we call to you, you will answer. And Father, we just ask now that you show us the things that we need to see in these verses, things about yourself and your great mercy, and show us ourselves as we look at this psalm and what we did not deserve. Father, we ask now that you will open our hearts and our minds to see what a great God we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. So this Psalm 106 is a song. It's a song about man's sin, God's judgment, God's mercy, and his saving grace. The basic things of the gospel. We see the gospel in this psalm. The gospel runs through the whole Bible. We see God as Savior in this psalm. We can see ourselves as undeserving sinners in this psalm. Unless we had come to understand this gospel, we would have never been forgiven and had never been changed. We would not have escaped hell. I'd like to break down the psalm into four sections. Verses 1 to 3, praise of God's goodness. Verses 4 and 5, the prayer for deliverance. Verses 6 to 46, the persistent grace of God. And finally, verses 47 and 48, the final prayer for salvation. Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm, Israel's history is here written with a view of showing human sin, even as the preceding Psalm 105 was composed to magnify divine goodness, it is in fact a national confession. So 105, if you read it sometime, you'll see how they magnify God's goodness. But this Psalm 106 is in fact a national confession. The Psalm begins with a call to praise God, verses one to three. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. A praise to God for his goodness. Now in the Bible, goodness means his abundant generosity. He gives, he loves to give, and you can't outgive the Lord. His steadfast love lasts forever. His kindness, his tender mercies, his grace, his patience, it never weakens. He was that way years ago and has not diminished. He's done so much for us, for our salvation, for keeping us, for meeting our needs. Another commentary by Kidner states, and I quote, For all its exposure of man's ingratitude, this is a psalm of praise. For it is God's extraordinary long-suffering that emerges as the real theme. And verse 2, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Who indeed could ever tell of the many things he's done for us? How could we ever praise him enough, no matter how we try? Nobody can give God the praise he deserves. 
Now that should stir us up to try even more and more with sincerity and intensity. But there's an answer here. It comes in the next verse. And it says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Blessed are they. That means favored by God, accepted by God. Who can utter the mighty deeds? Who can praise him? Whose praise would he accept? Well, here's a description of the people whose praise God accepts. They do two things. Two things, two traits. And depending on your translation, they keep judgment or do justice. And that has a a word, a Hebrew word, that is mishpat. It means to have God's standard as your own standard. When, When you think, evaluate, decide, analyze, it's God's standards revealed in the Bible that you use to measure your decisions. Is that act right? How should I respond to this? Should I be thinking this way? Are these thoughts right? It's to have a God-centered attitude towards life. It's to study God's word and find out what God's standard is and how to evaluate things this way. So keeping judgment or doing justice, is that's, that's what it means. And because of mishpat, that person will do or practice righteousness. And the Hebrew word here for practice is sadika. It means to faithfully practice and conform to the will of God. The believer who today lives according to the Spirit sets their mind on the Spirit. They'll do everything they can to encourage good and put down evil and will try to practice righteousness at all times. They'll have upright principles and upright practices, and that's the proof of our praise to God. To quote another commentator, thanksdoing is the proof of thanksgiving, and the good life of the thankful is the life of thankfulness. If our mind is dominated with God's character and his revealed will, we'll practice righteousness. We'll try to conform to God's law. We don't do this in order to be saved. We're saved already, saved by grace. And because we're saved and we've experienced God's grace, we want to bring our lives and our behavior and our relationships to conformity with God's will. And this is the tone of our life, not just now and then, but we'll strive with the Holy Spirit to do this. We won't do it perfectly, but we'll seek to live in conformity to his will. And when we do fail, God's word assures us in 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So that's the person who can truly praise God and the praises God receives. To do this on our own strength, it's impossible. But God has promised the Holy Spirit to help us to live this way. How can it be? Well, you know, I love Psalm 23 because it says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. His word shows us righteousness. His Holy Spirit, whom he sent to the believer, helps us to practice righteousness. Why does he lead us in the paths of righteousness? For his name's sake. We'll talk about that later. Well, let's go on to verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. This is the ESV I'm reading for from, and so maybe some of you have, have other translations. But the psalmist is saying, remember me, show me the favor you show to your people, Lord. I want these things. I want to be part of your people. Look at the verses and see the reference to your people, your chosen ones, your inheritance. These are all referring to God's covenant people. The psalmist is saying, I don't want to be cut off from your people. Remember me when you save them. Now, they're in dire straits in this land of exile. They have been deprived of kingship, priesthood. There's no temple, no sacrifice. The faith of God's people experienced maturing through this. O. Palmer Robertson says, God's covenant people and their king in the suffering of the agonies of the exile with the dwelling place where the dwelling place of Yahweh was utterly devastated. Yet 
in a way that cannot be humanly explained, the nation's exile at the hands of international enemies has become the proving ground of the people's faith in the certainty that Yahweh will do it. Interesting, God's covenant people and their king suffering the agonies of exile with the dwelling place of Yahweh utterly devastated in a strange land cut off yet in a way that cannot be humanly explained the nation's exile at the hands of international enemies has become the proving ground of the people's faith in the certainty that Yahweh can do it or will do it does that sound familiar today we're cut off aren't we from the things that we know all the familiar things and yet these people knew that Yahweh will do it. So the psalmist asks, remember me when you save them. Did you catch that in verse 4? When you save them. Now the King James translation says, visit me with your salvation. And in other words, and I'm going to quote Spurgeon again, there's no salvation apart from the Lord, and he must visit us with it. We're too sick to visit our great physician, and therefore he visits us. I really like the way Spurgeon describes it, when God chooses to draw someone to himself and save them. I'm so glad that God does visit us with salvation, because if it depended on me, I wouldn't be here today trying to give some testament to his grace. Neither would you. But you know, you can say, I made a decision to serve the Lord. I did it. But who persuaded you that this was the truth? Who caused you to realize you were undone and needed a savior? The great physician sought you, and he found you. Well, let's go on, because the psalmist says, Lord, I want to see your people blessed by your mighty works. I want to share in that joy with your blessed and redeemed people. Now today, today, I just wonder, do we rejoice that we're part of God's covenant people, that he sought us? He bought us with his blood. Do we rejoice in gathering with God's people? Do we look after each other? I think especially during these past weeks, I have come to miss that special fellowship that only the people of God truly understand. That blessing that comes not only from hearing the word, because we are hearing it each week on the live stream, but that special blessing as together we join corporately and experience that praise and honor of worshiping the Lord. The blessing of knowing that God is over us as a people and identifying it with each other. Something, something special, too, that I enjoy is our corporate prayer meeting. It's great to pray with people in a small group, but there's just something about meeting together as we hear each other voice God's goodness to us and his keeping power. Well, this psalm is about the exile, during the exile. So we're going to go on to the third section. And this is the, the larger part of the psalm, really. It details the persistent grace of God from verses 6 to 46. And we're going to go verse by verse. And by the way, these verses uh, recount what was told in Genesis 14 to 17. And that's basically where these, these things happened. So verse 6 and 7. Read with me. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Crime and punishment, I call it, because the repeated failure of Israel, he not only sees the failure as something of Israel's past, he identifies his present generation with Israel of old, connected in their wicked deeds. The psalmist goes on to say, We sinned like our fathers. We imitated them. We saw the way our fathers lived at home, and we imitated them. Our fathers in Egypt, they did not see, didn't understand the wonders. It wasn't because they were stupid. They were some very smart people. And it wasn't because they were illiterate. They suppressed the truth. They refused to acknowledge what in their hearts was the truth. They did not remember your steadfast love. They didn't want to. Remember when we studied Romans? Those times that in chapter 1, I think it was, 
God gave them over. That was repeated. God gave them over. Well, verses 8 to 12. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. Now, after talking about them rebelling by the sea, the Red Sea, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his works, his words, and they sang his praise. So here we see God speaks. The Red Sea parts. Israel walks through. And as soon as Pharaoh's army get in the sea, God causes the sea to close up and cover and drown them. Both Egypt and Israel were rebels. Why did he save Israel? They were both rebels. Israel was no better than that army, and yet the Red Sea was God's instrument of deliverance for Israel and God's instrument of destruction for Pharaoh's army. But they were both rebels. Well, in verse 8, it tells us why he saved Israel. And I like the NASB description. The other, This is another translation. It says, Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name. I like that word, nevertheless. It's not shown here in the ESV. It's yet. But nevertheless is also used in another verse later, and we'll come to that. Why did he save Israel? Well, the same reason he saves you and I and any other undeserving sinner, because of his great name. Nothing in the sinner that merits saving. On the coast of the Red Sea, they were rebelling against God, yet God saved them. Did he save them because they're so good? He destroyed the Egyptians because they had rebelled against him. But he saved the Israelites who were rebelling against him. Why? For his name's sake. Spurgeon says of this verse, God jealously guards his own name and honor. It shall never be said of him that he cannot or will not save his people or that he cannot abate the haughtiness of his defiant foes. This respect unto his own honor ever leads him to deeds of mercy, and hence we may well rejoice that he is a jealous God. End quote. Verse 8 also says that he might make his mighty power known. Do you often ask yourself that question? Why me? Why did he save you? Why did he save me? To which I just say, praise God for his mercy and grace. One day we'll all be praising God's name that, and thanking him for his goodness and his sovereign grace that was revealed to us in his son. Well, here they are. After they come through the Red Sea, they're rejoicing for a while. They even sang his praise. He redeemed them from the enemy, and they started believing his word. But then did it last? Verse 13, they soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. That's a sad sentence. They forgot. Now, how can you forget the Red Sea? I mean, how can you forget what you just saw? Well, how about us? Don't we do the same thing? We read or hear the word of God, and we're rejoicing, and then all of a sudden something happens, some opposition or something in our life that we don't expect. And it can be illness. It can be very serious illness. It can be broken relationships and financial trouble, and we worry and we fret and we project, which, of course, is my personal trait. And I have to catch myself and think back and remind myself of the many times the things that I fretted about never came to be. Are you identifying with this poor sinner? which I'm glad to say is saved by grace. One of the things Jackie said last week in her lesson was that we need to remember. We need to remember to think back how God has answered our prayers in the past, how he has miraculously moved and answered on your behalf or those around you. Ask him to bring those things to your mind. I thought that was a really good point that she made, out, made up. You know that it is God who has intervened for you. Well, they forgot his works. They didn't wait for his leadership. They had goals, and they had an agenda, and they knew what they wanted. They didn't want counsel. They headed out. Do we do that? I'm going to do this or that. I'm not going to seek counsel. I know what I want, even if it's maybe something that might be against God's will. 
You know, sometimes it must be hard for pastors who counsel and are rejected only later to find the very thing they counsel again brought that person to ruin or distress. Well, verse 14, here we go. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. They had impulses and desires that led them. Lost people live by impulse. Saved people live by the Spirit and by discipline. Remember how we talked about that in Romans? A lot of this Roman stuff is sticking right to this. If someone is a slave to sin, to, to all these cravings, is he keeping justice, as it said in, in the first few verses? Is he or she blessed? Well, they grumbled. They were not content with what God had given them that he wasn't loving them, they complained, they tempted God. They thought God wasn't treating them right. They were missing out on something. They complained, Lord, you do what I want, or I will not believe in you. They tested him in the desert. And that story is actually repeated from Psalm 78 and 18. They said, we're tired of this manna. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them what they asked. He sent quails, quails, and more quails. And they ate, and they ate. But the meat became a curse, and God then sent a plague and destroyed thousands for complaining. In Numbers 11 and 34, the place where this happened was called Kibroth Hatava, and it means graves of craving, because that's what their craving brought them. It brought them to the grave. God killed them. The God of love, of goodness, of loving kindness, of grace and mercy is also a God who will not give his place to another, whether it's an idol or a craving. God may send what we crave, but he'll also send leanness into our souls as well. So we need to be careful that the things we crave don't bring us to our grave. We need to be careful in what we ask of God. Let him choose. Ask him to give us only what is best for us. Well, verse 16 and 18, this is another story. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. More sin and punishment. This was Korah's rebellion. They were complaining against God-ordained leaders. They were really rebelling against the God who appointed these leaders. They said, we want to rule the nation ourselves. So God opened the earth, swallowed up a lot of them, and then sent fire to take care of the rest of them. Who did it? This God of loving kindness. He caused the earth to swallow them up. He will not be usurped. Verse 19 to 23. And let's read this one together. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the grass, for the image of an ox that eats grass. Remember Romans chapter 1? <laughs> they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the lands of Han, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They forgot God. How do you forget God when he surrounded you and protected you? They purposely forgot. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses entreated the Lord. And right now, I'm just going to read this for you. Exodus 32 and 11. Here is the mediator entreating for the people. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abram, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here is a picture of the gospel 
And it says in verse 14, the Lord changed his mind. And that can be uh, confusing because the Lord didn't change his mind. I think a better translation for the phrase is a word that means to turn away his wrath. So here was Moses, the mediator. Moses was God's choice. He pleads with God, even though Israel deserved it. He pleads for the sake and glory of your name, for your reputation. The Egyptians will say, what kind of God are you that you had to bring us out here and then kill us? So here's a picture of the gospel. God loved Israel, and God had chosen and sent Moses to deliver Israel, to intercede for them, so as to turn away his wrath. Moses is a symbol of Christ. God, who knows the end from the beginning, acted in accordance with his justice, and he turned it to mercy. It wasn't that he changed his mind. He knew right from the beginning what was going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning. So here was a picture of Christ and his mediatorial office. Moses stood for his people back then. We see that. God did not destroy them. But even Moses wasn't sufficient because later he did get angry and frustrated with them. But our great mediator and savior was greater than Moses and did fulfill his mission and mediates for us each and every time we need it, each and every hour. To quote John Brentnell in The Banner of Truth, in human affairs, a representative is not a substitute. Whereas a substitute takes our place, a representative acts on our behalf and so makes us present where we cannot personally be. But Christ is both. He always has represented us and always shall represent his people before the face of God, the throne of grace, and the judgment seat. He stands for us, and we are present in him. This means we're chosen in him, accepted in him, righteous in him, glorious in him. Whatever he is before God, he is for us. And so we are complete in him. He is our mediator. Paul wrote that. He said, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy 2 and 5. Well, verses 24 to 27. This is like a soap opera. Not that I watch them. Okay, 24 to 27. Then they despise the pleasant land. But after all this, they despise the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. No sooner had they been delivered from God's wrath and to a pleasant land, a land of promise, they saw the risks. They did not want to go in. They did not believe in what he promised. They'd rather be in slavery there was security in that. And so God swore to them in verse 26, they would die in the wilderness. So for the next 40 years, they died off. And not only that, but later they would be scattered among the lands. This is kind of a little picture, really, of someone who, before they are born again, are hanging on to what they think this world will give them. Thinking, well, they could never hold out. They could never be what God required. They didn't even realize that the promise is there, that he would be with them. And so, verse 28, here they are. Another plague, another mediator. Things were so bad, they were slaves of Baal Peor, which was a popular religion, a status religion. The head of the state was directly related to Baal worship. And you could pledge your allegiance to the head of state, and the state would give you all the blessings you needed. This provoked God. So here comes another plague. Now this mediator is named Phineas. And I'm going to read the little story from Numbers 25 for you. So just listen as I read. While Israel remained at Chittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. 
They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And the story goes on. And, and this great plague, and, and uh, those that died by the plague were 24,000. Now further on in the story, the Lord spoke to, to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel. Now here's what happened. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And while this was going on, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, and he took a spear, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague was stayed. Now there had already been 24,000 of them that had died. But because of the zeal of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, God said, He's turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And then goes on to give you the name of the woman and the man, but we don't need to worry about that. Well, Finn acted, I should say Phineas, I keep thinking of Finn Taylor, but Phineas acted as a go-between. He said, I'll give him a perpetual priesthood. And what did Phineas do? Well, the guy who had flaunted his rebellion takes his harlot into the tent. Phineas runs him through the tent with his spear, and the plague is turned away. The plague is turned away for the action of this mediator. God blesses Phineas for what he did. Wow, that sure isn't our standard, is it? The first thing we can do is look at it and go, whew. Well, you know what? We can't put our standards above God's. Verse 31, God says what Phineas did was reckoned to him for, for, for righteousness. Well, in Genesis 15 and 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And in Romans, it says justification is by faith in Christ alone. The moment you put your faith in Christ and Believe in him, that moment God credits right, God, Christ's righteousness to you. So you're saved by what Christ did, by faith alone. By faith alone. But it says in verse 31, this action of Finn was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now this does not refute the fact that salvation is by faith alone, and it doesn't refer to a justifying act. Finn was already a believer. Phineas acted on his faith. It was a testament of his faith in God, and God commended him. His action showed his faith. Well, let's go on. We're getting down there. Verse 32, this is the waters of Meribah. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. This went hard on Moses. They were complaining to him that God had brought them here to destroy them. And God says to Moses, go and speak to the rock and water will come forth. But all God said was speak to the rock. Moses added to the word of God, tapped the rock before he spoke. Frustrated, he just moved ahead before the Lord. God chastened Moses and said, you're not going to get to the promised land. You see, Moses was adding to the word of God and was putting his own act to the word of God. Now, the reason was he was fed up, but God did hold him accountable. He did take him to heaven, but he never got to the promised land. These people had provoked him, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And the people who rebelled were punished at different times as we read these stories. They were judged by God, but so was Moses. We are all accountable. 
leadership and followers alike, all accountable. And perhaps it would do us good to think about our leaders. Now, I'm going to read this quote from Spurgeon, and I think it bears repeating. Sometimes congregations provoke their ministers or pastors as Israel provoked Moses. We ought also to be very careful how we treat the ministers of the gospel, lest by provoking their spirit we should drive them into an unseemly behavior which should bring upon them the chastisement of the Lord. Well, we're going to go from 34 now to 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and then the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. They mingled with the idols. They were told to destroy them. Not only did they disobey, they didn't destroy them. They mingled with the pagans, told to destroy them. It was their downfall. They were to be separate from these nations, set apart, not to associate with the ungodly. One sin led to many more. The first sin was in not obeying and destroying the people, and that led to many more sins. Their sin was in part their own punishment, and often God's, often people see themselves ruined by those who lead them into evil. But it's the act of going along with sin that's to blame. Evil can rub off on us, and the more we expose ourselves with ungodly people, there is a danger we'll get caught up in their habits. I think of little children so unformed in their vulnerable state when they're closely associated with ungodly people, it can be dangerous. Israel's mixing caused them to learn the pagan practices. Now we know that we're to try and reach the unsaved for Christ. But here's a danger. Who do you spend a lot of time with? Yes, we need to build relationships and get to know people with the view that we're going to try to win them for the Lord. But because of, of who we are and how easy it is for us to want to follow the herd, we need to be careful who we spend time with. I had a friend whose mother had a very close friend who was always berating her husband. And my friend said whenever her mother had been around this woman for a period of time, she seemed to berate her dad until he clicked to it. The Bible teaches in Proverbs, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Not to hang around with an angry person. It can rub off on us. People can get worked up over stuff and it's so easy to join their cause and then you become caught up in it. We need to be very careful. Come out from among them and be separate from them. That verse can refer to many things, and often we hear it in relation to being in a church that does not preach the gospel. But I think we can apply it to many areas of our life. Well, verse 40 to 43, getting down to the end. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them over into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into their subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. He abhorred his heritage. God abhors sin, and he gave them. He gave them. Look at that. Did you see what he said in verse 41? He gave them into the hand of the nations. The pagan nations just didn't take them. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. God could have delivered them, but he could not because they were not repentant. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Now we get to 44, 46. Nevertheless, he looked down upon their distress and when he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to his, the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held him captive. Very interesting. When did he look down? When he heard their cry. When a cry rooted in faith came from them, he remembered his promise, even though they didn't deserve it. 
And look what happened in 46. Verse 46, he caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Cyrus gave them their liberty. Darius granted them several privileges. And Artaxerxes sent back Nehemiah and helped him build Jerusalem. Listen to this little bit that I read from Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings from the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus bought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them bought, brought by Midradoth, sorry, Mithradoth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30 silver dishes, 1,000 silver pans, 29 gold bowls, 30 matching silver bowls, 410 other articles, 1,000 in all. There were 50, in all I should say, not 1,000. There were 54 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazzar, brought all these things along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. In God's mercy, he gave them favor with the nations that they, where they had suffered exile. In 45, it says he relented. When it says he changes his mind, it may seem that that's the case, but it's not because God doesn't change his mind. He's known the, from the beginning what was going to happen. He predestined from all eternity how he would deal with them. It wasn't God who changed, the, who changed. It was the people who changed. They repented. And so God changed the way he was dealing with them. Although the people were unfaithful to him, God nevertheless was faithful to them, which is why this psalm, in dealing with their sins, ends in a positive note. It's really a praise psalm. And so verses 47 and 48 are the final prayer for salvation. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. The song ends with, Save us, O Lord. Now the psalmist had started out, Remember me. Now he's thinking about God's people as a whole. Gather us to give thanks to your holy name. It's the same prayer that's found in 1 Chronicles 16, 35 and 36. The prayer then is the same prayer that the psalmist was praying on behalf of the exiles. That same prayer is applicable today as we wait for Jesus to return and is described in Revelation 7, verse 9. After I looked and I saw a multitude too large to count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It gave me goosebumps when I read it. <laughs> well, what about today? Why look at all these accounts of Israel? What's the point of going into the Old Testament and reading? What's it got to do with you and I? Well, Paul told us what it had to do with, why it had to do with you and I. And that's why I sent you that portion of scripture in 1 Corinthians 10. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians and to us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now these things, in verse 6, which is, is what I want us to, to uh, zero in on. Now these things took place as examples for us. Did you hear that? As examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then it goes on. We must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble. And again in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And it just goes on and on and on with some really good um, instruction. Paul writes to the, Christian, to the Corinthians, we live on the other side of the resurrection. We know the plans that God has. We know what's going to be happening. They were written for our instruction. God did write these things to warn us as an example. So we see how important it is for us to be faithful to the Lord and to his word. We're truly a privileged people. We have a great God and a great Savior. <clears throat> now next week, Karen is going to be leading us through Psalm 110, if you want to give it a read. But I'd like to close in prayer now. Father God, we just thank you for these things that we've been looking at, serious, serious things. We just ask that you would daily help us to remember We've been bought with a price. We have your spirit within our life. We have your word as our instruction. We have each other. We just thank you for your gracious mercy and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.